My name is Colleen, and I'm from South Africa. And um, this is my third summer camp. And uh, I must say, I, I, I feel at home here. I feel at home here. Many of you, we have been to South Africa, and we know you. And it's been such a privilege just to be back after these number of years and just to reconnect with you. We find um, the Nordics so welcoming, so warm. And uh, it's just a privilege and a pleasure for us to be here. So um, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Can you hear me? Is my accent okay? So today we just have the privilege of um, having a look at um, the John 8 story. And... um, I thought before we start, I want us just to set, give the, give the setting of, of when that was written and what was happening in that time. And um, so let's, let's do that. Lord Jesus, we pray that even as we open your word together, that you would speak to our hearts. We know that your word carries life and uh, life in abundance And we thank you that, Jesus, it's only your Holy Spirit that can change our hearts. And we thank you for just being available to be able to listen to your word today. Thank you for the inspiration that we get even just reading the scripture. So bless every person that is here, and we want to bless our time together. Thank you, Jesus. So the context of this John 8 story was um, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a time when the Israelites were reminded of what Jesus had done for them in the wilderness. And so every year at this time, they celebrated by bringing crops and rejoicing at at God's faithfulness. And... um, The disciples said to Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And he said, no, you go ahead of me because my time has not yet come. And we know Jesus needed to be alone at this time. And uh, we see that as a pattern that he had. There was many times where he wanted to draw aside and be alone. So he said, you go, I'm not coming. But he did go later, not publicly, but in secret. And it was a time when the Jews were looking for him. There was a lot of controversy surrounding his life. Um, Some said he's a good man. Some said he's a prophet. And some said he's leading many astray. But he began to teach openly in the temple. And let's us try and imagine ourselves in that story. Try and place yourself in that story with many questions Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Who is he? Should we believe in him? Let's check who is believing in him. Should I be one of them? This was the kind of environment in which the people were living. In John 7, verse 16, it says this. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. 
There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of, not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Jesus was trying to explain to the people who he was, and it was a time of anguish for him. They shouted, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you all were amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So this is what's leading up to that John 8 passage. He's trying to teach them about judgment. So there were many questions about him. Is this not the man? And in verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cries out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from, and I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. Jesus is trying to get through to them. And, you know, just when it says he cried out in the temple, we can, rem- we can imagine his anguish. Imagine living your whole life misunderstood and people don't get you. It must have been really hard. They were trying to seize him, but no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so the people thought they were in charge of the situation, but we know Jesus was in charge. Many of the multitude believed that he was the Christ. Verse 37, now on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and again cried out, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from him. Some were arguing about where he came from. There was division amongst them. They said, have any of the Pharisees believed in him, those strict Jews? Nicodemus said, and we know Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus in the dead of night so that he wouldn't be seen. Nicodemus said, our law does not judge a man until he hears him out, what he says and what he does. He was telling them what the law actually said. So Jesus is teaching about judgment, he's teaching about living water, and he's trying to explain to them who he was. And then we get to John 8, which is the story, as most of us would say, the story of the adulterous woman. We could rather say it was the story of the kind Jesus. But we call it the story of the adulterous woman. So John 8 from verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He'd been praying. That was his place of prayer. He went there often to be alone, his retreat place. And I know that we all need a retreat place. We all need a place where we go to pray. And he'd done that. It was early in the morning. 
At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They were checking whether he knew the law. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. And we know that this is Jesus' big test. Does he know the law? Does he know what Moses has commanded? Does he apply the law? Jesus had gone to pray in the Mount of Olives early that morning to listen to his father, to be in a quiet place. Then he came early to the temple. The people came and he sat down and he was teaching them. There's something significant about him sitting. It was relaxed. He wasn't trying to be um, important. He just sat quietly teaching them. In the midst of this peaceful context, the strict Jews, the Pharisees, they drag in this woman, probably half-dressed, and they drop her in the midst of the listeners. We know it was by force because the scripture says they made her. They made her come. It was probably a male group because women weren't easily taught in those times and they began to test him on the law. Verse 4 and 5. Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And it's as if they're saying to him, we know the law. Do you know the law? This is what it says. And there's an arrogance in that. We know it. Do you know it? What do you say? And then we know Jesus does something completely different from what they thought he would do. Um, He's already sitting. Picture this. He's already sitting. And now he stoops down to the ground. There's something about being low that is really significant in the story. He writes in the sand. He ignores them. And his posture says, 
you answer your own question. I'm not going to answer you. Has Jesus done that to you? You ask him a question and he's silent and he wants you to answer your own question. But they persist. The story reminds me of the story of Solomon with the babies. I think of Jesus in that situation, sort of being caught in a trap. Like Solomon was caught in a trap with the two babies. Whose mother? Who's the mother? And he has to appeal to his father for wisdom, great wisdom. And we know he comes up with this amazing wisdom. And so with Jesus, he stoops down and we can imagine that he's praying to his father. And saying, what must I do? He straightens up again and says, who of you is without sin among you? Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops down again. He's not even going to watch their response. They begin to leave, the oldest first, and as an older person, you become more and more aware of your need of mercy as you get older, as of your sinfulness, of your need of grace, of your need of mercy, when you've been through life for a while. And so the oldest, the ones who know their need of God, Leave first. That's how it is. His act of stooping down and not watching them, for me, is a way of saying to them, I'm not even going to judge you. He doesn't see them leaving because he's stooped down. So he's not watching, okay, who of you? Who's going to stay? Who's going? He lets them do that on their own. And so it is a story where he doesn't judge the men who brought her either. And he says to them, you be your own judge. And so they are left alone, Jesus and the woman. He straightens up again and it's a way of showing, okay, I'm present to the situation again. And he asks her, where are they? He can see that they're all gone. But he wants her to see that they have left. He wants her to see. So he asks her, where are they? Did no one condemn you? He wants her to see that they have left, but also that nobody has a right to judge her. He hasn't judged her. And in their leaving she can see that they don't have a right to judge her either. According to the law, they did. But this is a new law. So he doesn't set himself up as a judge at all. And he makes a statement in that action that men are not superior to women and therefore they cannot judge her. We all know it takes two to commit adultery. And we never hear about the man. They were caught, so he must have been around. But he makes that statement. Men are not superior to women, and they cannot judge her. 
In Jesus' day, women were owned by men, and it was they were really um, lorded over by them. But because of Jesus, men and women stand equally before the Father. You know, this remains revolutionary even today, even in our society today, um, in our society and in the church. This is still revolutionary. And I think in the Nordic countries, you guys are further along than many places in the world in terms of your equality, men and women together. And um, yeah, I applaud you because of it. But Jesus calls for the death of patriarchy in society and in the church. And he says to her, you are free. You don't have to sin anymore. You're free from judgment and you don't have to sin anymore. And so in that he's saying to her, you have value, you have identity. And we need to hear that word. We are valued. We have identity. We know that in her lifestyle, there's a very good chance that she was giving sex to get love. That's an easy thing to do. And so he was not only speaking to the outward sin, which was very obvious. He was speaking to the inner things of her heart. What was she trying to do? in her actions, and he was speaking to that as well, he realized that there was an identity issue at root. And so this so often is for us, in the things that we find ourselves doing, we're trying to find our identity. So Jesus treats her with kindness, with dignity, and he covers her shame by making those who shamed her leave. And by placing all sinners on level ground. Men and women. And I think one of the most powerful things about that story was not only that he gave identity and that he, um, as it were, spoke a word of death to patriarchy, but also that he said to her, you don't have to sin anymore. There was something about his ability to empower her to choose well. He said, don't go and sin anymore. Leave your life of sin. So it wasn't that he wasn't interested in her lifestyle at all. He was very interested in her lifestyle. And in his action of not judging her, he said, you don't have to do this anymore. You're free not to do this. And this is probably the greatest um, benefit that we have as Christian people that we are empowered by the presence of God in our lives, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, not to sin. It's amazing. I don't think in my own life I have ever asked God to help me to not sin in a particular way that he said no. I've usually said, no, I'm not going to ask you right now. I want to do my own thing. But when I've asked him, there's always been that empowering presence to say, no, I won't do this. I won't do this. So he didn't condone his sin at all. And he pointed out how the men had sinned. And he gave them an opportunity to leave. 
So God removes judgment from all of us, men and women alike. And in Jesus, she discovered who she was. He gave her identity and he empowered her to say no to sin. This is the most amazing story. It's just a picture of the gospel, of how Jesus um, places us all before him on level ground. And he says, you are loved. I don't judge you, no matter what you've been doing. But don't do it anymore. And I give you that empowering not to do it anymore. And I think for some of us, we know that we've loved, we are loved because we have been saved. Um, we might even know that, uh, you know, there's now no longer um, condemnation for those of us that are in the Lord. But I think the part we struggle with is more about being empowered not to sin. And so there's many things going on in the story. And, you know, my question to you is, what's God saying to you in the story? If you put yourself in that place of feeling at your worst, you know, being dragged in front of people, exposed. And then God saying, I don't judge you. The worst thing that you might think about yourself, the worst thing. And he says, I don't judge you. And neither do any of them have any right to judge you. Because we don't have any right to judge one another because we've not walked in each other's shoes. And we often, you know, I find myself thinking, what would I have done if I was in those shoes? So, I think there are a few questions that we can ask ourselves, you know. Are there areas in your own life where you feel self-righteous and you judge others? You know, for some of us, when things go wrong, life goes wrong, circumstances go wrong, relationships go wrong, we have that inclination to think it's somebody else, it's out there, it's not me. And we find ourselves judging the external. That's our default. For, other, for others of us, we find ourselves when life doesn't work and relationships don't work, we find ourselves judging ourselves. It must be me. There's something wrong with me. It's me. We judge internally. Same, same. You know, and it's good to know oneself in that. What are you inclined to do? do you, are you inclined to blame outside or are you inclined to put it all on yourself? So in what areas do you find yourself judging? Do you judge yourself or do you judge others? It's a good question to ask the Lord to show you. Another would be, um, are there ways in which you try to get your identity needs met? And the ways that we do that are endless. You know, in our day and age, it's endless. The things we might do to, we might say, to comfort ourselves or to get our identity needs met. Maybe we're the kind of person that just wants to help everybody because we want them to think well of us. And so we just run ourselves ragged 
just saying yes, 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 when we should be saying no sometimes. But we can't say no because we really, our identity is in other people's acceptance of us. So maybe that's a way we're getting our identity needs met. Maybe we work super hard and we're climbing the ladder and maybe we just want to be wealthy. Whatever we're doing, we all are tempted to do something other than get our needs met in the Lord. And God says to us, I'm a jealous God and I want all of you. So if you're bowing down to anything else, it's idolatry. If you bow down to food, if you bow down to fame, if you bow down to, you know, the media, it's endless what we can bow down to. And Jesus says, I want to tell you who you are. And if you look anywhere else, it's illegitimate. You, I want to tell you who you are. So it's a good question to say, God, are there places where I'm still trying to get my needs met? I'm still trying to find out who I, who I am in this area or that area. Maybe, um, you know, when I drive an electric car, I will be, okay. I don't know. There's endless ways in which we try to get our needs met. You know, maybe in South Africa you've got to drive a four by four. You know, with mud on it. You've been somewhere. You know, somewhere muddy with a good, healthy man's arm hanging out the window. I don't know. Where do, what do, we, where do we try to get our needs met? Hey? Maybe as a man, you feel superior. Secretly. It would be secretly. Maybe as a woman, you feel inferior. Secretly. And God says, I don't want you to do, feel like that anymore. I don't see you like that. Do you need to connect with Jesus and allow him to tell you who you are? We know that this story is also a beautiful story of connection. We see Jesus connecting deeply with that woman. Um, and we need those encounters. We, we need God to tell us again and again and again, this is who you are. Let me name you. And sometimes we need to just acknowledge I'm in a place like that again where I just need God to tell me one more time, and I don't believe he ever tires of it. One more time, who am I? Am I okay? Do you have... Have you placed value on me? Or should I still be playing the comparison game? You know, the terrible thing about the internet, it's a trap of comparison. And whenever one compares yourself with somebody else, somebody's being raised and somebody's being lowered. And it might be you that's being lowered and somebody else who's being raised or the other way around. You're saying, at least I'm not like that. So it's such a trap because we, we, we're trying to assess each other's lives by outward appearance. And um, this woman's outward appearance was not great. Jesus um, was not going to judge her like that. Do 
So Jesus' loving presence and acceptance, um, his connection empowers us to say no to sin. And there's something about just imagining yourself many times a day sometimes standing before the cross and saying, empower me not to sin. And we've all got our, can I say, our default sins, the things that we find ourselves doing that we don't want to do. Paul said that. I find myself doing what I don't want to do. We've all got stuff we do that we don't want to do. And yet here in the story, we hear that Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that anymore. But not in our own strength. Only as we listen to that spoken word of the Lord can we, can we say no to ourselves. Because often we're saying, I can't. I can't say no to this. But actually it's I won't, eh? I won't. And Jesus is saying, if you will surrender to me, I will empower you to say yes to righteousness. Yes to my way. And it's not, there's no quick fix to this. It's many moments, many moments where we have to come again before the Lord and say, empower me to say yes to you. Empower me to say no to my default pattern. And so the question is, are you living with sin? Are you living with things that you've been living with for so long that you just think, I'll never change. I've tried hard. I'll never change. Just those, the scripture calls them besetting sins. Sins, things we know are wrong, but we just find ourselves doing them. And Jesus says, you can say no to sin. But not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not by trying to try harder, but more by being in that surrendered place and saying, God, empower me in this moment to say yes to you. And it's practice. It's practice. It's a daily practice. And I thought that it would be very great for us to be able to pray with one another. And, you know, I think there's something about just confessing any of these areas, you know, maybe identity needs, just a need of a touch, maybe something that you find yourself doing over and over again, um, maybe you felt inferior or superior, any of these things that have come out in the story, there's something powerful about being known in our vulnerability. And I'm going to encourage you just to pray with somebody, maybe just in twos, and it can be somebody you don't know at all, that's perfect. There's something very powerful about bringing into the light what is hidden. It breaks the power of that sin. Or it breaks the power of that, uh, can I say, weakness, vulnerability. So I want to encourage you to um, just ask the Lord, you know, what have you been, what have you been bringing up as we've been sharing the story together? What what is stirring in my heart? What is there that I should be saying no to and I'm still saying yes to? In what way am I still considering myself inferior? Are there places where I'm trying to get my needs met that are not really bringing glory to you? So I want to encourage you just to spend some time and then I'm going to pray just to turn to somebody near you and uh,
take a risk of being known. Preferably not with somebody you know. It's actually, it's, it's easier with somebody you don't know. You know, find somebody you don't know. And just for a moment, let's just become known in anything that's come up for you in this story. And I'm going to give you some time. You can move around if you need to do that. What have you said to us, God, in the story? What have you said to us personally? We know God is always busy. He's always wanting us to know a little bit more about how he feels about us. And then as you've shared together, I want you just to pray and bless one another. Remember, no judgment. Absolutely no judgment. No judgment. How are you guys doing? Are you nearly done? No? How was that? Hmm? I, I've thought, you know, as I was just praying for you while you were praying together, I felt like I saw like a cloud lift. And I feel that's a picture of what happens when, as the scripture says, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. There's a condition to healing, and it's becoming known. And uh, it's good to know that. It's good to know how we are healed. We're healed as we become known to one another and to the Father. You've made a new friend, which is amazing, and obviously we respect confidentiality when people share stuff with us. But um, I think just... As we begin to close off, you know, there's a couple of scriptures that I say to myself, and they all have to do with whose voice is this? You know, if the scripture says there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, whenever we're feeling condemned, we know that's not God. It's straightforward. I always think that as Christians, we complicate the gospel. The gospel is really simple. It's just harder to walk out, but it's not complicated. We don't have to be intellectually clever to understand the gospel. It's actually simple. And that's one of the things I say to myself. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So if there's a condemning voice coming my way, I ask myself, whose voice is that? It's not God if it's condemning. And you know, the scripture says we must be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So in other words, we need to know the sound of the evil one so that we won't get tripped up by it. If we don't know, we're constantly at his mercy. But if we know what his voice sounds like, then we can, as the scripture says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it's very good for you as you're journeying with the Lord to be able to discern the voices that come your way. The voice of comparison is never, he's never God. He doesn't compare us. Um, 
we see that in the story. He didn't compare the so-called self-righteous Pharisees with the woman caught in adultery. He said, you're the same before me. You're the same. And I think sometimes in the church we're a little bit surprised when there's a sinner in church. But I mean, we're born in sin. So it should be normal for us to be needing to confess to one another um, the things we're struggling with. I think another scripture that is, um, or another concept of scripture that is really a favorite of mine is, is just because God is jealous, it means he wants everything. And he wants our struggle. It's like, I think it's so easy to say, God, I'll sort myself out, then I will come to you. I can't come to you until I've sorted myself out. Well, the woman was caught in the midst of adultery, and she came like that, half-dressed. And there, I do believe Jesus considered it a privilege to encounter her. And so it is with us. When we come in our brokenness before the Lord, he loves it. He loves it. He loves to be part of your joys, but he loves to be part of your struggles. And somehow we get this message that we should not have struggles. And this is a story that says it's okay to have struggles. Big struggles, obvious struggles, as in her case. But you don't have to do it anymore. And that's a journey, as we know. We don't always instantly get out of our vulnerability. But we are on a journey, and God is busy setting us free from the things that are our besetting sins. I believe in the world that in which we live, which is a high-productivity, high-comparison world, it's actually okay to need to go often to God and say to him, just remind me who I am again. Just tell me again. I need to know today. Just tell me who I am again. How you feel about me. Because it gets broken down in our society. And um, so I just want to encourage you. Just remember that story. It's a beautiful story where Jesus is just so loving. He, his loving kindness is so evident. He's so gracious. He's so unjudgmental. And when we choose to be unjudgmental towards one another, it's not about not identifying sin and not dealing with stuff that needs to be de dealt with. It's more to do with giving up our right to judge. And that's really what he was saying to the Pharisees. You do not have a right to judge. We know all sin will be judged, but by a just God, not by us. And that's even um, certainly one of my motivations to forgive is, okay, I'll give up my right to judge this person, that situation. It will be judged but I give up my right to do it. And so God is constantly saying to us, you are loved, you are valuable. Come to me when you have besetting sins. Come to me to allow me to tell you who you are. And uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. As um, 
Fleming was staying this morning. It's amazing. How, how beautiful is it for us as Christian people to constantly be allowed to be growing? Have you ever thought about that? That you're not stuck. You could be 80 and you still can grow. That's not true for everyone. For some pr- people, they've reached their pinnacle and that's it. For us as believers, until we draw our last breath, we can be changing. We can be um, surrendering. We can be learning more about who God is and who we are. And that's such a gracious privilege that we have in the Lord. So I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you do not condemn us, not at all. You don't condemn us as men. You don't condemn us as women. You have walked in our shoes and you understand our struggles. And so thank you, Father, that you are a jealous God, that you want all of us. You want the good parts, the ugly parts. You want our dreams. You want all of who we are. You count our tears in a bottle. And so I just pray for every person present today that this would be a reminder that, Father, before you, we are all on the same level. And you've died for everybody. You understand our frailty. You, we, you know that we are but dust. You don't have the expectations that we have on ourselves. I pray that we would learn to be a less judgmental people. I pray that we would be safe people that people could come to us and share their struggles and that we would have the humility to go to others when we struggle. Thank you for your gracious heart, O God. Would you bless each person here? And thank you that you're busy in every single one of our lives and you will always be busy. And that is just amazing. So bless you all. Amen. I think if anybody wants specific prayer, you're welcome to come up. But I, I love the fact that you've prayed for one another. And um, yeah, everyone gets to play. So bless you all.